today we are going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Colossians 2, 8 through 15. Uh, the title of this sermon is, What's False and What's True? In the world of counterfeiting and on Craigslist, a lot of deception takes place. Um, fake bills and, as Bobby can tell you, fake guitars being passed off as the real thing. But here's the deal. As we learned last week, for that to work, the fraudulent seller or the counterfeiter needs their product to look a lot like the real thing. Uh, it can't look like a Tonka truck and be sold as a Toyota. It can't look like a two by four and be sold as a tailor. Uh, we talked about this uh, again a bit last week. Knowing what's real and what's fake is important in the world of buying products. But how much more important is it in the spiritual realm where eternity hangs in the balance? That's where uh, our text goes today. We'll see Paul warning us against what's false and then encouraging us toward what's true in Christ. So let's dive into the text, Colossians 2, 8 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our two main points, as you might have already picked up, are, are these. Number one, what's false? And number two, what's true? Uh, just fair warning, point two is going to have a number of different subpoints below it, um, but those are the two main hooks that we're going to hang truth on from this text. So point one, what's false? Look with me again at verse eight. He starts out and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. A couple of truths that I want us to see here. First, Paul isn't making a blanket statement against philosophy, per se. Philosophy simply means love of wisdom. Uh, as Christians, we should love wisdom. Uh, the Proverbs are full of wisdom. 
James chapter 1 tells us that we should even as Christians pray for wisdom and that God will give it. So this isn't a bad thing. Uh, philosophy in and of itself isn't a bad thing. Uh, Paul's poking at something a lot more specific here. He starts with the word see, which in this context carries with it the connotation of being aware or watchful or even on guard. So what Paul's saying is, be alert. Why? Why would we as Christians need to be alert? Well, because there are dangers out there. And Paul knows that for the Colossians, it isn't just out there. Uh, these dangers have come into the church in the form of false teaching. So, from the beginning, Christians... Don't believe everything that you hear or read or watch. Paul just told them in verse 4, he said, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Again, plausible arguments in and of themselves are a good thing. As Christians, we should be able to give plausible arguments for why we believe what we believe. But Paul's saying, church, heresy, and false teaching often sound plausible. If it didn't, it wouldn't work. It's like fly fishing. If the bait doesn't look like the actual thing, the fish will never bite. Right, Ryan? Well, he's nodding over there. But when they do, the fish is caught. That's the word Paul uses here in the text, captive. The fish swims up, expecting to eat a fat, juicy, nutritious fly. But they're deceived. What they actually chomp down on is empty, and they're now a slave to the hook. False teachers know all of this. Satan knows all of this. It's rarely blatant heresy that lead people astray. It's usually subtle distortions of the truths of the Bible. So, be watchful. Know what you're ingesting when it comes to information. Social media, television, even sermons. Ask the question, what is its source? Does it square with scripture? Or is it a Trojan horse with a little truth mixed in? See to it that no one takes you captive. So, what does Paul tell us to see or to be watchful of specifically? Look at the text again. He gives us some guidelines. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The specific philosophy he's talking about is empty and deceptive. And then he gives us three red flags to look for. First, he says that this empty, deceptive philosophy is according to human tradition. The adjective here matters. It matters a lot. Tradition isn't the issue. But human tradition is. As we learned last week, 
As Christians, we believe in tradition. We learned that our tradition is the faith that we've received. It's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. 2 Timothy 2.2 tells us that we should keep entrusting these truths to faithful men who will teach others. That's tradition. But that's God's tradition, not man-made tradition. What Paul's saying is that hollow, deceptive philosophy is fake wisdom that isn't rooted in the Word of God. It's the same charge that Jesus made against the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. This is what Jesus said. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So, where do you get your beliefs? One of my close friends from seminary, a guy named Adam Adams, great name, um, but Adam used to have this, this great bumper sticker that said, my dogma is too big for a bumper sticker. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. His point was this, what he believes comes from the word of God, which is far deeper and more meaningful than any bumper sticker slogan. Where do you get your wisdom? A bumper sticker? Social media? The news? Blogs? I posted this a while back, actually on our social media page, but I think it's so helpful here. It's a thing called the Wisdom Pyramid, and here it is. Where do you get your wisdom? Where do you get your beliefs? First and foremost, the Bible should be the bedrock of, of where we get our beliefs and information. Followed by the church, nature and beauty. According to Romans 1 and Psalm 19, the Lord reveals himself to us through his creation. Books, books are good. Internet, and then finally, actually leads with the social media. Uh, a healthy and balanced diet for a growing Christian is built upon the tradition of God, his word, our daily bread. Every other piece of information we take in should run through that filter. Further, as you see in the pyramid, the volume of the Bible should be substantially larger than our intake of everything else. Saturation in God's word helps you to spot empty deception right away. Second, Paul says that hollow philosophy or empty philosophy is according to the elemental spirits of the world. While there's considerable amount of debate on what he actually means here, the idea seems to be this, that deceptive philosophy is spiritually blind. Paul uses the exact same phrase as he does here in Colossians, in Galatians 4, verse 3. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, 
were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul reminds us that in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Hollow and deceptive philosophy is spiritually blind. Third, Paul says that it's not according to Christ. Not according to Christ. So remember that the Gnostics have been telling the church there in Colossae that Jesus is a starting point, good starting point, but you've got to move past him. They've taught this view that Christ isn't fully God or fully man, but that he's some strange emanation from God. The moment your faith starts moving away from Christ at the center is the moment you're on your way to being deceived and held captive. That's what Paul's saying. That this empty philosophy is not according to Christ. So, know Christ, fully God, fully man, the perfect Lamb of God who never sinned in any way, always obeyed in every way, became flesh, as we heard in John 1. He fulfilled every prophecy of Scripture, went to the cross as an atoning sacrifice in our place as our substitute. No, Christ. The moment Jesus becomes an afterthought or just someone you believed in at your conversion then moved on ahead to deeper things, the moment that happens is the moment you're in grave danger. So don't get caught by hollow, deceptive philosophy. Paul begins here in our text with how to spot what's false. But often the best way to know what's false is to know what's true. So point two, what's true? As I shared earlier, there are several subpoints to this one, but hopefully it'll help you to, to follow along. So first, Paul wants us to know what's true about Christ's fullness and ours. Point 2a, the fullness of Christ. So how many of you out there are familiar with the term FOMO? A couple of you, a lot of you? Yeah. Fear of missing out. FOMO. Advertisers thrive on this. Uh, they sell you the idea that you're somehow missing out. That there's a gap between your current situation and what their product is promising. You're missing out. You need this product. And I, I want us to see this morning that false teacher, uh, false teaching resembles this in a number of ways. The Gnostics, again, are selling this idea to the Colossians that they needed Jesus plus their spiritual product. Jesus plus what they were telling them that they were missing out on. A product which was a mix of religion and ritual and morality and vague spirituality. They were selling the idea that the Colossians were missing out on the deeper things. So look what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. Speaking of Jesus, he says, For in him 
The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. You see how that combats what's false? With true Christology. In him, meaning Christ, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's fully God and fully man. Jesus isn't merely God-like. He's more than just a good example. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Why should they reject the empty philosophy of the Gnostics? Because everything they're offering can be found in its truest form, in its most fullest form, in Christ. He's the head of all rule and all authority. Remember everything from chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Christ is supreme over all things. You don't need any more or any less. Why? Because you have been filled in him. Now, what does that mean? The fullness of deity is in him, in Jesus. And you have been filled in him. Borrowing this illustration from a guy named Kent Hughes. Now, I want you to imagine going out to the ocean, which we're going to do later for baptisms. I want you to imagine going out there and looking out as a speck of dust into a seemingly infinite expanse. Now, if you were to take a jar in your hand and put it down and let the ocean rush into it, your jar would immediately be filled with the fullness of the Pacific Ocean. But you could never put the fullness of the Pacific Ocean in your jar. Thinking of Christ, we realize that because he's infinite, he can hold all the fullness of deity in himself. And yet, whenever one of us, finite creatures, dips the tiny vessel of our life into him, we instantly become full of his fullness. You see that? If you know, if you know that to be true about Christ and true about you, what more do you need? There's no fear of missing out. Paul continues further with more truth. Surprise, surprise, more Christology. Point 2b, union with Christ. So he starts with fullness in Christ, now he moves on to union with Christ. Remember that union with Christ is the doctrine that for Christians, what happens to Jesus happened to you. What happened to Jesus happened to you. When he was nailed to the cross, your sin was nailed to the cross. When he was buried, your sin was buried. The old man was dead. And when he rose, you rose spiritually from the dead. A new life. 
born again to a living hope, as we sang earlier. That isn't empty deception. That's rock-solid truth. Paul gives us two portraits of our union with Christ to remind us of this truth. First, circumcision, and second, baptism. Circumcision and baptism. And in these, we're meant to see death, burial, and resurrection. Look at verse 11. He says, In him you also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is complex stuff, but it's worth our time and hard work in the text to figure out what Paul's saying. So first, what's circumcision? Physically, it was the removal of a piece of the male foreskin, the removal of a small amount of flesh. Spiritually, it was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham, given in Genesis 17. Now, Remember that a part of the Gnostic heresy was advocating Jewish customs. Anyone want to guess what one of those customs was? Circumcision. Maybe not to the extent that it was being peddled to the Galatian church, but it was being taught here in Colossae as well. The Colossians were being told by the Gnostics to be a real Christian you need to be circumcised first. I didn't share this earlier, but the word captive back in verse 8 is this word sulagogon. It's only one letter away from the word synagogue. Paul was intentionally making a pun there and using this word. He's saying the philosophy that tells you that you need to be circumcised to be saved actually does the opposite of that. It'll make you enslaved and captive. But here, Paul's making an even better point. He says, in him, meaning in Jesus, you what? Were circumcised. You don't need to be circumcised because you already have been Christians. How's that possible? Look at the next several words. With a circumcision made without hands. Paul, are you crazy? Everyone knows that you can't do a circumcision without hands. Wrong you are. Because Paul isn't talking about something physical here. He's talking about something spiritual and something so much more meaningful. He's talking about the circumcision of the heart. Physical circumcision wasn't God's primary concern. And Paul didn't just make this up. Look at what Moses says to the people of God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Moses is encouraging their faithfulness, and this is what he says. He says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Even more clear, Jeremiah the prophet, in distinguishing between the faithful and the fake, he says this, Jeremiah 9, verses 25 through 26. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Do you see that? It's possible to be circumcised physically, but still be uncircumcised in heart. It's also possible to be uncircumcised physically, but still be circumcised in heart. Uh, circumcision of the heart is what God is ultimately after, and it's not done with hands. But the Old Testament, as much as it talked about the circumcision of the heart, it never explained exactly how to circumcise the heart. We know that that only happened in Christ. What do I mean by that? Follow Paul's logic here. If circumcision is the removal of flesh, and flesh, scripturally speaking, usually refers to our sin. So if circumcision is the removal of flesh, where is it that Christ put off the body of flesh? What was the circumcision of Christ? The cross. When Christ died, he removed our flesh. He removed our sin nature. He circumcised our hearts without hands. In case we didn't follow his logic. Paul spells it out for us in verse 13. Look at this. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. We'll come back to that in just a second. We're unified with Christ in his death on the cross. We're circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. But there's more. We're also unified with Christ in his burial and in his resurrection. Look at verse 12. He says, having been buried with him, Jesus, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. This is powerful. Paul's saying, Hey, Colossians. Hey, Santa Cruz Baptist. When someone comes trying to sell you their version of spiritual power, remember, remember your baptism and what it symbolized. If, if they say what they have is powerful, you have the powerful work of God that raises the dead to life. Don't forget that. Good, good luck one-upping God with something better than resurrection. Verse 13 again. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Clear language. Before repenting and believing in Christ, we were pretty decent people who just needed a little help, right? No. Before Christ, we were on life support, but still breathing, hoping for a comeback, right? No. We were dead. 
Not in the doghouse, in the morgue. This is the state of every single human being apart from Christ. Dead in our sin, the uncircumcision of our flesh. This is the same truth that Paul teaches from Ephesians 2 that we read in our confession of sin and assurance of pardon earlier. We were dead spiritually because of what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden. And it was true. He told them that that if they sinned, they would surely die. They did. And every single one of us who came after them inherited this sin nature. All of us, in fact, do sin and are dead spiritually because of it. But here's the good news. God made us alive together with Christ. For those who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ as their only hope of salvation, when he rose from the grave, you did too. In Christ, your hearts were circumcised. And in Christ, you were buried and raised to new life. And how did that happen? Middle of verse 12, through faith, not through works, not through morality. Union with Christ comes through faith and faith alone. That's what's symbolized every single time someone gets baptized. This is most clearly seen in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. We'll actually be reading this text later on the beach. Romans 6, 3 through 11, says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see the resurrection language there. Your baptism is salvation in picture form. It's a parable of the gospel. Water baptism isn't what saves you, but it's a picture of what God has already done. It's a picture of your union with Christ. So don't be taken captive by what's false. Know what's true about Christ and about you in Christ. Christ is full deity, and you're full in him. Christ died, was buried, and rose again, and you're unified with him. Third and finally, point 2C, we're 
full in Christ, we're unified with Christ. And third, Christ defeated and demolished our enemies of sin and Satan. So how did Christ make us alive? Look at verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is glorious. Christ defeated death. And he canceled the record of death that stood against us Christians. Understand this. In a Roman court of law, defendants would have the charges for them read publicly so that everyone there knew and understood if justice was being carried out in the punishment. Think about what Pilate had nailed above Jesus' head. King of the Jews. That was the charge that was against him. That's what Paul's saying here. Jesus took our rap sheet, every sin that you've ever committed, and he nailed it to the cross. For God to be just, there must be legal demands. He must punish sin, every single sin. If he merely chose to look the other way, he'd cease to be just, and he'd cease to be God. But every single sin was laid on Christ. He took our record of debt. He absorbed the full amount of God's wrath, and he defeated sin. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live, we sing. For those who are in Christ, there's no sin too big or too dark for him to forgive. Jesus took our rap sheet and paid it all. And this last verse is mind-blowing. Look at the result of our sin being taken care of in that way. Verse 15 he, again meaning Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, this is a picture of Rome. It's a, a portrait of a triumphal parade after a military victory. There's this guy named Plutarch who's a, a Greek philosopher during this day. And he actually wrote about one of these three-day parades when a Roman general named Aemilius Paulus captured Macedonia. The streets are lined with scaffolding so that people can watch the victory parade down Main Street in Rome. I've got kind of a long quote, but I've got it up here for us. This is Plutarch describing one of these victory parades. He says, on the first day, three-day parade, on the first day, 259 chariots displayed in procession the statues, pictures, and colossal images taken from the enemy. On the second day, innumerable wagons bore the armor of the Macedonians, as Plutarch tells it. All newly polished and glittering, the pieces of which were piled up and arranged purposefully with the greatest art, so as to seem to be tumbled in heaps carelessly and by chance. Helmets were thrown upon shields, coats of mail upon graves, Cretian targets and Thracian bucklers and quivers of arrows, 
lay huddled amongst horses' bits, and through these there appeared the pointed points of naked swords, intermixed with long Macedonian sarasus. All these arms were fastened together with just so much looseness that they struck against one another as they were drawn along and made a harsh and alarming noise, so that even as spoils of a conquered enemy, they would not be held without dread. Following the wagons came 3,000 carrying the enemy's silver and 750 vessels, followed by more treasure. On the third day came the captives preceded by 120 sacrificial oxen, with their horns gilded and their heads adorned with ribbons and garlands. Next, Macedonian gold. Then the captured king's chariot, crown, and armor. Then came the king's servants, weeping, with hands outstretched, begging the crowds for mercy. Next came his children. Then came King Perseus himself, clad entirely in black, followed by endless prisoners. Finally came the victorious general, seated on the chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold, and holding a laurel branch in his right hand. All the army, like a manor with boughs of laurel in their hands, divided into their bands and companies, followed the chariot of their commander, some singing verses according to the usual custom, songs of triumph, and the praise of Amelius's deeds. You see what Paul's saying here in our text? Jesus is the victorious general at the end of the parade. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he defeated sin and Satan once for all. He's put them to open shame and triumphed over them through the cross. Christ is Lord. You're not a victim of these evil forces. Jesus Christ has conquered. That's the truth that overcomes hollow and deceptive philosophy. Guard your minds, brothers and sisters. Know what's false, but even more than that, know what's true. Dwell on and cherish these gospel truths. There's nothing sweeter. Let's pray.